Hi everyone, I'm Jenny, and what gives me life right now is long walks in Prospect Park in Brooklyn. Hi, I'm David, and uh, what gives me life is when I can cook something and it almost feels like it could be in a restaurant because it tastes that good. It doesn't happen that much, but when it does happen, <laughs> that's what gives me life. Hi everyone. I'm Tamara, and what gives me life is reading old movie reviews written by Roger Ebert. <laughs> Hi, this is Scott, and something that gives me life is that satisfying feeling when you cleanly peel off a scab. Yes, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> and you are listening to the Judson Podcast, where a group of friends talk about faith, culture, and all the things that interest us. David, what is something you cooked recently? I was curious about that too. <laughs> I started using the the slow cooking option on the Instant Pot. Doesn't that defeat the purpose of an Instant Pot? Well, you know, that makes sense. But <laughs> it's Instant Plus. It has an instant option. <laughs> I've been slow cooking like chicken and like cutting up sausage, putting onion and some spices in it and slow cooking it for like two hours. Pasta sauce on it at the end, and that was it. So pretty much making a meat sauce, but just eating mostly David, meat you're making and me hungry. Eating that. <laughs> Probably the first person I saw slow cooking was Scott a while ago at the Judson house, actually. Oh, I guess to give our listeners some background. So most of us know each other from our college fellowship. We all hung out at our ministry headquarters, which was called the Judson house. And that's where we developed some of our lifelong friendships, where we grew the most in terms of discipleship. And so as we continued to hang out with each other, as we transitioned into adult life, we kind of commemorate the fact that it was Justin House where we all got to know each other. Mm -hmm. So David, are you cooking more now that, it's, now that everyone's in lockdown? Yeah, I'm going to the grocery store and cooking more. Now I'm actually home longer throughout the day and stuff like that. Uh, some ordering, so ordering some stuff or picking up from restaurants or whatever. I was actually going to say, I feel like I've been ordering f mm. more food out. That's the reason I've been walking more too. I'm surprised at how much of the, of Prospect Park I don't know because I go there every day to run. I've lived near it and ran in it every day for three years. I still don't know it that well. And the blooms are out right now. Yeah, they are. It's beautiful. It's awesome. Very springy. Thank you, coronavirus, for introducing me to my backyard that was there the whole time. <laughs> oh, I have to say one other thing that's given me life. Swiss Beats and uh, Timberland, the producers, every Saturday night they've been putting on battles and like like on Instagram. They had, uh, I think, Scott Storch, Manny Fresh. They had uh, DJ Premier and the RZA from Wu-Tang. It's just cool seeing all the people who are on. It's pretty much like a concert almost. Because so many people are there at the same time, but it's free and something that's probably only could happen in Corona is bringing a lot of people no. together. I think last one they had like 400,000 like, people on at one time. I was about to say, I, I like the equalizing nature of the concerts. The fact that when you're on, you see Michelle Obama's name scroll by, what? you know, these politicians' names scroll by, all these quote wow. unquote influencers scroll by, all everyone is at home. And so there's something. Oh, Very cool. unifying about it. So the topic we have for today is 
Unusual Lessons from the Bible, Volume One. You know, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know, gone to Sunday services, Bible studies, small groups, or quiet times, you know, every one of us come across things in the Bible where maybe it makes us do a double take, or we just <laughs> have absolutely no idea what it's saying. And we, of course, believe that the Bible is God's written word. And not only that, but the Bible encompasses so much more because the Bible is a historical document of thousands of years of Jewish history. It is a work of poetry and literature. It has one-on-one -on -one personal correspondences between individuals who lived thousands of years ago. It has voices and styles of dozens and dozens of different authors. So there's so much that encompasses the Bible, and of course, we don't get to hear about all that on your typical Sunday mornings. Our pastors are much more comfortable preaching on whether you're a Mary or if you're a Martha than, than some of these passages that we're going to get into, which are oftentimes um, risque and graphic. So we thought, okay, let's all, let's all bring like a, our own passage today and talk about it and ask each other questions. And, you know, so for some of these little mini lessons, we might not even have like an insight or an application that we want to share. It's just, hey, here's something weird I found in the Bible. What do you guys think about this? And, and that describes actually my passage. So my, uh, if I could give today's mini lesson a title, I would call it Protecting the Family Jewels. Lovely. So this is Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 11 through 12. If two men are fighting, and the wife of one of them comes to rescue her husband from his assailant, and she reaches out and seizes him, the assailant, by his private parts, you shall cut off her hand. <laughs> Show her no pity. <laughs> and so in this chapter of Deuteronomy, uh, Moses is kind of going through a laundry list of rules and regulations for, the, for Hebrew society. And he just casually brings up this thing about cutting off your wife's hand and then just moves on to the next topic. And it's very, very jarring. So what do you guys think of that? I appreciate that there are enough cases, probably just been one to freak people out, but there's probably more. I appreciate there are enough cases that they had to make a law about it, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hardcore. Go Israelite. Go Israelite women. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah, so apparently, you know, I, I did a little bit of research into this, and I guess what the commentaries are saying is that this is really a law about fair fighting. That was my thought exactly. These two guys are squaring off against each other, and it's not oh, right man. for the wife to be like tag teaming it against the enemy. It almost reminds me of like, I don't know, Jerry Springer. That must have happened like enough number of times. Yeah, for like the law to step in. That feels like it flies in the face of it flies in the face of what we've been taught about two becoming one flesh. I just want to say that all's fair <laughs> in love and war. Yeah, I'm just saying. Exactly. What's what's a bigger expression of love than fighting for your man? Yeah, mm -hmm. joining your spouse in a in a street fight. Come on. Have you done that, Scott? <laughs> Has your spouse joined you in a street fight? Yeah, there's been instances where my wife would yell at people on the street. Uh, maybe they were cat callers. Maybe they were driving and they cut us off. But there's been a few times where that happened. And I thought, all right, am I going to have to like back this up physically? The other interesting thing about this passage is that apparently it's the only 
Old Testament law where the punishment actually is physical mutilation. Uh, you know, some people might have a caricature that this is that in Old Testament times people were always barbaric, like barbaric punishments. But this is actually the only instance of that. David, you said this happened to you before. I've kind of had that once, but I'm not going to share. <laughs> yeah, share. Yes. So we didn't really explain this in last week's episode. I know. But yeah, Tamara and David are dating. Mm. So basically with uh, me and Tamara, we're in a relationship. And and I remember we were going to see a movie and I was basically, I was parking. And I think someone almost cut me off. And then you reached over and honked the horn. And I was like, oh my gosh. <laughs> I was like, oh, am I going to have to? But no, nah, it was fine. Nothing happened. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. They needed to know right then and there that they were wrong. I wouldn't think that it was anything was going to happen. But like... Were they... What? Was the other car close enough that you could see their faces? I, I didn't think anything was going to happen. Like, really, really. But like, yeah. Could have been, <laughs> Just know that I had, I had confidence in your black belt skills, you know? That was a compliment to you. Thank you. I knew you'd protect us. <laughs> Long pause. Thank you. I actually am a uh, black belt technical, even though I haven't done it in a little while. Girls like guys with skills, David. I know, apparently. apparently. David, you probably need to, you know, brush up on that a little bit. <laughs> Well, <laughs> yeah, so I guess I guess to wrap up this little mini lesson, if you read the Old Testament for any length of time, you'll read things about God's old covenant laws, which are surprising and even offensive to our modern ears. One thing that we have to understand is that although there are a lot of laws that we read about in the Bible, not all of them are meant to be applicable for today. God decrees laws, but these are not always universal laws. Like, this is not a law that we follow today. Um, so God does lay down laws for certain cultures, for certain time periods. And it's a blessing, I think, when I read these laws that, wow, I'm so glad I'm not living in the time of the Old Covenant because this sounds um, like not my cup of tea. <laughs> why do you think, Scott, that people... Because that's one of the things that people would say is why it's fake. Why for them, not us? I think a lot of it is cultural. When you do research on some of the societies that the Hebrews were fighting against, you know, because they were constantly at warfare, like the Philistines, the, um, the Canaanites, and you read about these old pagan religions. You know, it's not like today where, where we can have religious tolerance, right? These were cults that were formed around child sacrifice and prostitution. To live in that society was a struggle for survival, right? So I think we need to understand when we're reading about these things that are happening in the time of Moses, it's more like Game of Thrones than 20th century American history. Mm -hmm. So it was actually maybe the society that was more brutal and these laws, as you were saying, are actually against that brutality. Yeah, yeah. We have to realize that cultural backdrop. Definitely. But then from your perspective, though, who do you think gets to say when's enough? Who gets to say, all right, that's done? Jesus. <laughs> when Jesus said, overturn certain Old Testament laws, like the dietary regulations, that's one of those indicators that we're living in a new period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Jesus also takes some laws and 
and shores them up and strengthens them. Like when he says, I say, even if you look at a woman with a lustful eye, that is wrong. Not just if you act upon it. Right. So Jesus clarifies for us which laws are cultural and which laws are universal. Yeah. Okay. Wow. We we actually extrapolated a lot. That's good. Um, I can go. I mine is um from Mark chapter eight. It was uh one of Jesus' healing miracles, but it was like one of the kind of rare ones. It's uh from the verse twenty two to twenty six. Let me see what it says in the New International Version. It's this. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hand on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home, saying, don't even go into the village. And so with this one, it was kind of odd because, like, pretty much, I think this is one of the only or the only stories where there's, like, a halfway point in the miracle. And it almost seems like, I'm tempted to almost think of this as, like, at the doctor's office. The doctor's work on you is, like, kind of give you this shot, and it's like, does this work? And you're like, uh, kinda. <laughs> and then they have to do something again. And it's like, how is this? Why is this the only time where it's like half and like someone's like has to be in the halfway state of like getting healed and stuff like that? It almost makes you think like their initial thought is he messed up. I mean, looking at it, I know some of the background stuff and I think this one was supposed to be symbolizing that the disciples were following Jesus and they kind of got it, but they also kind of didn't get it. And so like, that's kind of how, where they were at spiritually at that point. They're like halfway, they were doing miracles, stuff like that with Jesus and they're seeing his provision, but they didn't get that he wasn't going to be another person to lead them into battle. He was going to be the one who actually deals with their sin by, you know, becoming the, uh, the sacrifice for their sins. So they didn't get that part yet. So how people could read this is to say that, oh, Jesus failed or he didn't have enough power or something went wrong, right? Which is like the incorrect way to read it. Mm-hmm. And like you're saying, David, it wasn't that Jesus messed up. It's that he wanted to show the disciples um, something more about what it means to live a life of faith. And that, you know, sometimes things happen gradually and not instantaneously. Sometimes things happen in phases instead of how we expect them to happen. Yeah, I think in our culture especially, we just want this one weird trick, one rule that you have to follow, one magical thing that will propel you from point A to point B. And life isn't like that. I mean, we stick around on Earth for a little while for a reason. (laughs) Mm, Yeah. I think another application that you could pull out from this is... It's showing grace towards people who who don't have the same level of understanding as we might, thinking specifically about politics and race. Obviously, these are divisive times. And when you bring up words like white privilege or white supremacy. Triggered, yeah. Or. Snowflakes, yeah. Yeah, snowflake. um, Participation trophy. Token minority. Mm, You're a racist. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Telling someone they're a racist. <laughs> you know, a lot of people are 
no, no, I want to say they're ignorant, but when you're trying to bring them along to your perspective, you know, realize sometimes it has to happen. It's not going to happen immediately. Yeah. And if you want people to have greater understanding, it's going to take a while for the lens to adjust. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As well as people who want to stay out of it, they will have to do the same thing. So kind of like some people think, why do people care about these things at all? It's all stupid. But um, I think that's one thing that Christianity could help with on the sort of justice movement, being able to do it without going crazy, you know, not doing it in a self-righteous way. I think that's something that Christianity can add towards those these types of movements. I think it also, this story reminds me of how we see Christ now and how we will see him once he returns and we're in the, there's a new heaven and a new earth because even now we only understand in part and then we will understand fully. So it's like a gradual revealing of his power. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with you, Jenny. I was thinking it kind of captures the Maranatha paradox of how it means both come Lord Jesus and our Lord has come. And that was one of the last scriptures in the Bible in Revelation with the savior of the universe standing in front of you asking for more time. I feel like that's like emblematic of what we as Christians are called to embrace is that tension of, like you said, seeing in part being privy to his beauty, but also being kept in the dark and acknowledging that um, our salvation is still there and it's beautiful still. So yeah, as opposed to the greater perspective of like, oh, it's this is how it is. It was like this and now it's like this. If we embrace the we don't quite understand his timing, we'll be more open to how other other cultures or people understand his timing. Hmm. You guys all shared really good insights. And David, I have a, I have a, I just figured out a title for your bidding lesson. <laughs> okay, what's the title? This is for Tolkien fans. Ents of the New Testament. <laughs> Do you know what an ent is, David? No. In the second movie, those were the walking, talking trees, and the guy saw trees walking. Eh, eh, eh. Oh, yeah. gotcha. Tough crowd, tough crowd. Ents are biblical creatures. Uh, let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's an approved Scrabble word. Nice. <laughs> so my passage is probably more one that you might have heard before. It's about Jacob. And if you don't know who he is, he's of the Jacob and Esau story. He tricks his older brother Esau using some soup. He tricks his brother into getting his birthright because his brother is older and the firstborn and his brother should have gotten the birthright, but Jacob gets the blessing from his father instead. So after Esau finds out about that, obviously he's really angry. So Jacob's mother says to him, hey Jacob, why don't you leave the house for a couple of years? Why don't you go live with your uncle until this whole thing blows over and Esau doesn't want to kill you anymore? So Jacob's like, all right, that sounds cool. I got the blessing, now I'm going to go make my way in the world. And when Jacob arrives at this guy Laban's house, he meets these two women, two sisters. Jacob falls in love with the younger sister. The passage says, Rachel, the younger sister, was beautiful in form and appearance. And so Jacob makes a deal with their father, Laban, and says, hey, I will serve you seven years if I can 
Mary Rachel. I love her that much that I'm gonna work for you for free for seven years. So that's just the intro, and this is my the passage that I picked. Then Jacob said to Laban, it's been seven years, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. This is in um, Genesis 29, verse 21. So Laban gathered everyone together, marriage feast, everything's good. But in the evening, he took his daughter, Leah, Boulder daughter, the one Jacob did not want, and brought her to Jacob, and Jacob went into her. You know what that means. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. So Jacob didn't notice until the morning for some reason. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, which is a marriage tradition, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and served Laban for another seven years. And my story is called, <laughs> this is why you should always lift the veil at the wedding ceremony so you can be sure that you're marrying <laughs> the correct person. <laughs> <laughs> I was gonna say something more graphic. The fact that he didn't notice until the next morning means like the love-making skills of people 4,000 years ago, like it's gotta be pretty basic if they're not even looking <laughs> at each other in the face, right? <laughs> no they were nervous <laughs> it was very dark <laughs> maybe the wedding feast he got super drunk see that's the thing Like the text doesn't tell us why he didn't see it <laughs> no romantic candlelight <laughs> what if they didn't have the candles and it was at night and it was just dark if you can't see a person's face that means like it's pitch black like you can't see anything <laughs> So you're just grappling around for, for whatever you can hold on to at that point. <laughs> <laughs> also, did they not did they not talk or anything? Right. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I guess exactly. my sister and I have pretty similar voices, but we're not like the same person. <laughs> not like that. Yeah, same. <laughs> There's another lesson here. There's another <laughs> This kind of reminds me of the Fresh Prince episode where I think he married, Will Smith marries like... Nia Long. Nia Long's character just to have sex with her. And then when she finds it out, she like, on their wedding night, she slaps him. And I guess they divorced him like that. I don't remember that plot. We're going to have to fact, fact check that. <laughs> so, of course, the lesson from this passage is not... It's not really why we lift the veil at weddings, guys. That's not a fact. <laughs> but You sure? <laughs> I mean, it's funny. But I think what we really learn here is kind of similar to what we were talking about the other Bible passages. The Bible is a spiritual document, but it's also a historical document. It's telling you what happened. It's not necessarily lifting Jacob up as being this perfect person. I mean, he just 
tricked his brother out of his brother's birthright. So I think in this passage, Laban tricking Jacob, Jacob kind of gets what's coming to him a little bit. So to me, that kind of shows how God can use messed up people still for good. <laughs> but I think a lot of people I've talked to, one big problem that people can have with the Old Testament is polygamy. And they say, well, the Bible supports polygamy because, you know, the founding fathers of our faith were all polygamists. And I think what you see in this story is that the Bible is telling it like it was, but it shows that polygamy really doesn't work out that well because you saw in the last verse I read that Jacob loved Rachel more. And as you can imagine, the rest of their story, that's not a great family dynamic at all. Like that doesn't work out well for anybody. So if you read the whole story, they were mm -hmm. polygamous. Was it the best thing? No. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's not saying that, oh, we should go around stealing people's birthrights and tricking people into marrying the wrong person. <laughs> right. Narrative. It's not like a teaching. That sounds like a Netflix rom-com. <laughs> rom-com where the guy keeps both the girls. That's all. <laughs> I think we later see God's faithfulness in spite of the human messiness um, because God is really takes care of Leia and comforts her in her sorrow and in her not healthy family dynamic there. Yeah, I actually weirdly always got derived a lot of comfort mm. from Leia's story because like you're saying, God provided comfort for her. And I think as a sister, I remember, and I was one of the quieter ones, I won't say I felt passed over and I never tricked a guy into dating me when he didn't date my <laughs> sister by any means. <laughs> but I, I remember, uh, <laughs> yeah, there was something special about God seeing Leia as well that always touched me. Yeah. I think, you know, it's not a moral story, as we said, but I, I derive comfort from reading about the characters and um, seeing that God saw even the outcasts or the marginalized ones too. So. Hmm. Let's move on to our last unusual Bible lesson for today. Okay, this is mine. It's from Judges 3, 12 through 30. And I'm just going to start off by saying I don't know if there's a moral that you can derive from this. But the one I got is left-handers get the job done. Um, <laughs> I, I feel like you need some backstory, some considerable backstory to understand why I love this story so much. Um, so I am left-handed. My sister, both my sisters are left-handed and my dad is left-handed. So that's four out of six people wow. in my immediate wow. family <laughs> that's left-handed. Yes. We were homeschooled for five years. So that's a large portion of my K-12 through education. And uh, corresponding with that homeschooling was a strict media ban on most secular music or television or anything with cussing or any allusions to uh the outside world and so we had to take our entertainment where we got it <laughs> and so this story was the perfect storm for my family and i think if you it reads kind of like prestige television so this story centers around ehud the judge the judge that popped up when israel decided to stray away again and god mm -hmm. for sit well he let the moabites come in and overtake them they're overtaken by egon for 18 years and so, of course, Israel cried, cried out to God once again. And in the middle of their 18 years of being conquered and pillaged and plundered by this guy who the Bible makes sure to point out is a fat man. Um, I don't believe it was an attempt at fat shaming in the Bible. It sounds 
Like it was a value judgment less on what his habits and more on his exorbitant excess and how much um, access he had to food and wealth. It's dramatic foreshadowing. Oh, yeah, that's true. You're right. I do think this story is really well written. So I highly recommend you guys read it. Um, I'm not going to read it here because 18 verses. But like you said, dramatic foreshadowing. So basically, they hatched a plan for Ehud to deliver a tribute to Eglon, the king. And so what Ehud did was he had the tribute and then he strapped his sword to his right thigh so he could easily access it with his left hand. And so for me, this struck a chord as a left-hander who, um, you guys probably wouldn't know this, but um, the whole world is built for right-handers. And so I'm thinking that Ehud had like a history of, you know, maybe being in Hebrew school and, you know, all the pens, they never fit. And so he had ink all over his hand or he could never play any of the Israelite instruments because they're all shaped for right-handers. And you know what, when he was learning how to play with the sword, he probably got cut a lot because the sword is built (laughs) for right-handers. And so this is what I think is that he was training for this moment, all this left-handed oppression was um, building him up for such a time as this, where they had no idea that they should check his right thigh. And he used that for his advantage. So this was, I think, kind of powerful. What is it? What man designed for evil, God used for good. So um, that's what I think he did. He delivered the tribute. He said, hey, Eglon, I have this tribute, but I also have a secret for you. And Eglon was all right. And so he set everyone outside. Um, It was just him and Ehud in the private room. And they locked the door. So I'm going to read 20 through 23. Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle sank in after the blade, and his bowels discharged. Ehud did not pull the sword out. This is the Bible. Listen, it's just the Bible. (laughs) Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. So once again, uh, the sword is in the belly. The fat closed around the sword, and poop fell out of Eglon's belly. So, you know, I'm I'm here for the left-handed representation, the poop representation, And in the next verse, the servants, they get nervous about how quiet it is in the upper chamber, but they just assume that Eglon is going to the bathroom. So they wait and wait and wait until they're finally embarrassed and open the door and they see that he's dead. And so this very dramatic left-handed deliverance brought peace for the Israelites for 80 years. And it's just one of my favorite biblical stories, because once again, you've got intrigue, you've got secrecy, you've got left-handed oppression, you've got poop, you've got bathroom stories. It's everything. I mean, it's, it's prestige Bible storytelling. For <laughs> and it's one of those things where it's such a graphic detail. It's one of the things mm-hmm. that convinces me that it's uh, historically accurate. Indeed. It's you know, so Because I've seen a lot of movies where bowels come out, Game of Thrones, you know, World War II movies, and they never show the poop coming out with it, right? <laughs> like, right. Right. They're always like, empty for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate the accuracy. Yeah. You always see the red of mm-hmm. the blood. <laughs> I like the way that um, the ESV phrases it. If you've ever read the ESV version, it says, the fat closed over the blade. For he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. <laughs> That's ESV. Oh, I wish I'd used that uh, version. This was the NIV. For anyone listening who doesn't like uh, poop talk, I'm here for you. <laughs> I remember my dad. My dad used to read 
through the Bible to us every night, and I remember him reading this passage, and I think as a kid, I was more the prude, so <laughs> I think I remember find I found it to be really disgusting, and I think my dad was... <laughs> I think my dad had more of Tamara's reaction, like, this is amazing, how is this in the Bible? And I was like, this is the worst, <laughs> why are we reading this before bed? <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> David, how do you feel about the story being a famous uh, anti-pooper? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to go past the um, past the graphics into the allegory. This is where people can read the Bible and you can go straight to the allegory. That's that's the route that I take. <laughs> <laughs> What's the allegory, David? The allegory is the excess of the guy and how all the excess did not benefit him, but um, actually made him look worse in the end. Mm. Interesting. That's the sermon. That <laughs> so I am, in my day job, I am a scientist and I've always, what I've always appreciated about science is the truth behind it. And I just love like the natural, very honest aspects of like the biology of this man going against him. And so I appreciate the graphic detail, not just out of like a sordid sense of humor, even though that's part of it. I think there's something fascinating about like God being in all the nooks and crannies of our lives. <laughs> <laughs> but I would not be a good pastor, except for scientists, probably. Why not? Because I would talk, I would say, well, where did the sword land exactly for the bowels to discharge? Did they come out the belly? Did they <laughs> okay, too much, too much. Okay. <laughs> and one of you guys wants to do the thing about continuing the conversation? Yeah, you can find us on Instagram, on Spotify, and Twitter. Give us a like, give us a comment, leave us a review. Um, we'd like to hear about your weird Bible stories as well. We're going to continue doing this topic every so often. If there's any passages you really want us to discuss, let us know. Go left-handers. I never understood the scissors thing until I used a left-handed scissor. And I was like, oh, are you serious? Oh my gosh. Wait, we're stopping recording now, right?